Hi, everybody. Welcome to Shasad Podcast, conversations between scholars from around the world who study childhood, youth, and related institutions historically. As an official production of the Society for the History of Children and Youth, you can subscribe to these shows through iTunes or Google Play. Written and visual materials associated with each episode are available at our website, shcy.org. Enjoy. Hi, everyone. I'm Jim Martin at Marquette University. I'm the founding secretary treasurer of the Society for the History of Children and Youth and a past president. Today, I'm here with several colleagues as part of the Origins Project, in which we're trying to um, have some loosely um, defined oral histories uh, of the society's past, especially the first few years of its existence, and as well as some of the challenges facing it in the last few years. Um, This is the 20th anniversary coming up next year of our first conference at Marquette. Um, And so today, we have with us a few people who were either grad students or very early career folks at the founding of the organization. I'm gonna turn it over to them to introduce themselves. Melissa, why don't you start? All right, hi everybody. I'm Melissa Clapper. I'm professor of history and director of women's and gender studies at Rowan University, which is in Glassboro, New Jersey. And I have been involved with the society since I actually was at that first founding conference at the Benton Foundation in August of 2000. And I am a little hesitant to say in Jim Martin's presence that I've been a member every year since. I certainly have meant to be, but I, you know, I know he has the list somewhere and it's possible that I missed a year um, here or there, especially somewhat earlier on. But um, this is one of my I have two sort of research homes, American Jewish history and history of childhood and youth. And I'm really happy to be here. And it's been a real pleasure to see the growth of the society over the past 20 years and to, I hope, play some small part in that. Rebecca. Yeah, hi, I'm Rebecca DeSchweinitz. At that first conference, I was a grad student at the University of Virginia and uh, have been happy to grow up uh, intellectually and otherwise with the Society for the History of Children and Youth. Uh, I think I too have been a member every year and have attended uh, all but one conference uh, when I uh, couldn't travel because I was about to give birth. So (laughs) I think that excuses me. Um, I had the chance to serve on the executive committee for a few years, and um, this has been a really uh, important organization for me, uh, both professionally and personally. And Pat. Well, I'm Pat Ryan. I'm uh, program coordinator of childhood and social institutions at King's University College at Western University in uh, London, Ontario. Um, past president of the society. I'm currently uh, edit the um, shcy.org um, and, and have for a long time been uh, involved in, in helping the society communicate with its members. Um, I think uh, I, I completed my dissertation in 1998. My advisor was Mike Grossberg, who also had some involvement with the uh, society. Um, and so I was a um, uh, a young scholar when it when it was formed, um, uh, met Chris before finishing, and those relationships were all part of sort of you know the history of childhood and youth. You didn't call yourself a history of childhood and youth. At least I'd never really heard anybody doing that when that kind of um, field identification was going on. But I think that um, that evolved over time, and I was certainly really young in my career where all these things were happening and trying to figure how I wanted to, you know, what I wanted to call myself. So society certainly became part of that. What's a good, I think, transition into my first general question. A couple of you were at the original sort of exploratory conference in Washington in in 2000. And um, then again, in 2001, we had the first conference at Marquette. Most of the people sort of founding the society um, we're pretty senior scholars, either full professors or late associate professors. I think I was just on the cups of, of being promoted to full. Um, and I was new to the field, actually, at the time. Um, what was it like to join this senior group? Because both the, all three of you were involved pretty early on in various kinds of 
uh, responsibilities. What was it like to, to be part of that group? Well, when I went to the Benton Conference, or the Benton Foundation Conference, um, it was about six months before I got my doctorate. So I knew I was almost done. You know, I had basically finished writing and I just had a few months left, um, mostly for formalities at that point. I was still pretty bedazzled by some of the people that I was meeting there. Um, and I'd had that experience before, particularly at the Berkshire Conference of Women Historians, where some of, there was overlap. There were people there who had started to give presentations about girls. I distinctly remember the first Berks I went to in 1996, went very early in my graduate career. Um, I heard Jane Hunter give a talk about what was going to be her book eventually about how young, you know, how um, young women became girls, that, that book. And I, I did, so I, I actually had models pretty early on in my graduate career about people who were thinking about girls. And so that, but I was still pretty, I was fairly, I remember actually sitting next to Rebecca, we met at this conference, I don't know if she remembers, but I remember meeting her there and kind of looking around and thinking there was a little <laughs> bit of a generation gap. There were all these senior people and then there were a few graduate student types like us and there weren't a whole lot of people in between. <laughs> which I thought was interesting and maybe said something about, you, know, you needed either senior people to kind of strike out and say, here's this new field. And then people like us who didn't have anything to lose by, by making it our new field. And it was noticeable to me, um, but I'll just also say, and this has to do with how I got into the field. Since the origins project has started, I have been racking my brains to try to figure out how it was I got to that conference. It was by invitation. <laughs> and I don't know, I don't remember who invited me and I don't know exactly how I got there. But I had three different people in my life who might have been the ones who brought me in. And I wish I remember some historian I am. These are the perils of oral history. Right? Um, I had an undergraduate advisor named Peter Bardaglio, who was mm -hmm. the antebellum South and Civil War. And I had remained in touch with him after graduating from Goucher College. He is no longer in academia, but he certainly was at the time in 2000. And it's possible that he recommended me. I do think that's a possibility. He definitely recommended that when I went to Rutgers for my doctorate, I take a class with Phil Grevin, who was you know, mm. a, very, a very senior distinguished historian of the colon of colonial New England, a writer of the Protestant temperament. I mean, I, he wrote a lot about child rearing. I did take a class with him, so it's, and he was there. So it's possible that he brought me. And I also think that earlier that year, I was on a panel at the OAH about girlhood, about American girlhood, that Miriam Foreman Brunel um, was the panel chair for. And it's also possible that she had something to do with it. So I don't remember, but there were, for people my generation, I started grad school in 1995 and finished in 2001, there were options to present our work, even as graduate students, at big conferences on childhood and on girlhood. I did not have trouble presenting my work um, in a variety of venues. Um, also Jewish studies venues, but, you know, in women's history conferences, I, I gave papers at the OAH twice. And so there was some openness to the field, even at that stage that was showing up in larger conferences. Mm -hmm. So I think Peter Bardaglio had something to, me, uh, to do with me being there as well. And I too think that there are several people who made sure I got there. Uh, I was not as far as far along as Melissa. I you know, had written some of my dissertation, but I was definitely more in the beginning stages. And it was really, um, um, you know, super helpful to get connected to this community of scholars, mostly senior scholars who were so incredibly encouraging and excited about the work that, you know, I was starting to do. Uh, kind of shifted from um, U uh, U.S. women and gender history and was exploring this um, this field that wasn't even a field yet and starting to think about childhood and youth as a way to understand, you know, another underrepresented group in, in history and as a way to, you know, kind of uh, bring a new lens to understanding questions about race in particular in America's past. And, um, and I think that uh, faculty uh, in my grad program made sure that they invited some scholars who uh, had done work in the history of childhood and youth. So Peter Bardaglio came to campus and somebody made sure that I got to meet personally with him. And uh, Ning DeConnick Smith actually came to the campus as well. And I got to go to lunch with her at some point. Mm -hmm. um, so that was super, um, you know, super helpful and encouraging. And I think between them, as well as my advisor, Cindy Aaron, uh, who lived in DC, um, I think they made sure that I got there and knew about what was happening. Um, definitely there was a little bit of starstruck, <laughs> you know, kind of, uh, and deer in the headlights. Um, I wasn't exactly sure what I was 
doing, um, but it was, you know, really fun to to kind of see these folks um, talking about some some issues um, and trying to grapple with um, with what children, youth, and history uh, meant and what we could do and what they hoped would come from this gathering. Uh, so it felt, uh, you know, really exciting to be part of that. And really like maybe I had hit on something that was worth, uh, worth uh, you know, dedicating my life to. Uh, so uh, yeah, so that was kind of, you know, my thoughts going to that conference. And I definitely left, um, you know, with this feeling that, um, yeah, this field matters. And maybe I had peers in grad school who weren't convinced that history of childhood and youth was really something, but, um, but I had all of these, you know, really great scholars um, who had proved themselves in so many different ways, um, you know, telling me that, that, yeah, this is something, so. Just to keep the Badalio thing going, I think I stayed at his house when I uh, came out of the conference. <laughs> yeah. Pat, you were in the Washington. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say I wasn't. Yeah, I wasn't in Washington. I, I had to turn down the invitation. Chris was the one who invited me. And and one of the themes that comes out of this is that there's a, a social networks that actually yeah. define how you get started when you don't have a category to name things. And, um, you know, I always think it's clearer what we would call it only years later. But the networks I remember and those were not just a matter of revisionist history where I'm just trying to, yeah, I knew what I was doing right from the beginning because I really don't think I did in terms of categories of research or the creation of fields or anything like that. But I met, um, I, it's funny, I did meet uh, Ray um, or uh, Joe Hawes and later Ray Heiner um, years before, probably 1993, 1994, when I met Joe, she just came and talked to, at Mather House at uh, Case Western Reserve University where we were at in the history department there. And, uh, but it was more in the framework, certainly Joe by the mid and Ray by the mid 1980s had clearly wanted to create something like a field. That was the nature of the collections they put together, the bibliographic work they were doing. They were envisioning it as another category of social history and done in that frame. So you know, they, at, you know, were talking about it that way. Joe was talking about it that way. And I didn't, you know, I thought that was interesting. That was fine. And, you know, I was just doing my work. And incidentally, my dissertation was called um, Shaping Modern Youth, Social Policy and Growing Up Working Class in Industrial America. So certainly youth was part of that, but I didn't think of that in terms of fields. If you asked me what I was, I would say I was a social policy historian, have an interest in law and education and labor and working class life. Probably wouldn't have said the history of childhood. But I think the person that probably uh, connected me most was not meeting Joe earlier, but then in 96, I met Chris Lindenmeyer and, uh, was just putting a call out on the, I think it was Society for the History of the Gilded Age and Progressive Era. And we were both members of that, that network. And then just said, hey, I wanna present a, a paper at a, a conference that was up in Ottawa, a family history conference. And she and uh, Bill Grabner and I got together. And what was cool about that is that, you know, Chris had not written a right, to, she was writing a right to childhood. It wasn't published yet. So she had done that work. Uh, of the history of the Children's Bureau. Um, but she was, knew what she was about and knew what she was doing. And I didn't, I was just had fragments of trying to put things together. And Bill Grabner was a fairly well-known uh, social historian and had published a lot. So to, to me, what was great was just on my own, on my own relationships, to be able to get together with these people and share work. And that was incredibly exciting. And part of what allowed that happen was H um, was HNet. So this is prior to H Childhood, founded in 1998. HNet gave graduate students the opportunity to extend their network beyond their own department and to try to figure out what their work was about through those relationships that I think is a major change 
in how the academy works today. I think the development of the field is inseparable from the creation of social media. Um, now, <laughs> you might understand why I might argue that. It has a little <laughs> bit to do with what I've been involved with. But I, I think that's a fact. I don't think you get a society and the journal and all of those other things. Um, obviously, it doesn't happen without that generation of people, without a sort of vision that Joe and Ray had. All those things are necessary, but so is the technology. I think it drew us together. Um, you know, I went to that 1997 conference in Odense, Denmark, uh, that Ning put on, uh, and I had met Bengt that year too. All these people were important. They're senior to me and, and knew what they wanted more than I did. I was just sharing fragments of my what I was studying. You don't have those kind of international connections without the internet. I don't believe that would have happened. And those kinds of international conferences were really exciting because there were people from all over the English speaking world that were delivering their work and those were, that was an intense conference, that Odense conference of 1997. I'll never forget that. I was working like mad intellectually just to try to understand everything was coming in to my head. Well, I think that the comments you're making about those early conferences and relationships that were built there leads me to the next thing. I mean, one of the things that my thoughts about the society um, are centered on in some ways is how we have what's the verb, treated, is all I can come up with right now, grad students and early career people. Uh, my own experience was, again, I wasn't, I was not an early career person, but I was very new to the field. It was my second book, but I had never done anything about Schoen's history before. I found it very welcoming. Um, and I always have thought we had a, a fairly particular and special relationship with younger scholars in our organization, certainly compared to the other ones I've been involved with. And I don't know if any of you agree with that or if, as you have grown up, as Rebecca suggested, yeah. you know, in the last 20 years, <laughs> have you noticed that about the incoming folks that came after you? Um, we had one conference where at least a third of the people in the program are grad students. Yeah. When I would think I was, I think I might have been the year I was vice president and ran and, you know, was program director, but um what are your think, thoughts about that? Yeah, yeah. I think, you know, starting from the ground up that there was always a consciousness that if we're going to actually build a field, we've got to pay attention to building the field and, uh, you know, really encouraging uh, graduate students in the work that they're doing that's related to the history of childhood and youth. So I felt uh, a tremendous amount of, uh, of support. So um, Joe Haas and Gail Murray in particular, you know, mm -hmm. kind of, I feel like they took me under their wing <laughs> and yeah. made opportunities for me. Um, you know, so Gail, you know, very early on, you know, she um, found out about my work and then put together a, a panel for um, the Southern and, you know, for other kind of big name conferences, you know, that uh, as a grad student, I might not have felt like I could actually, you know, do that. Um, but there was a lot of facilitating of the scholarship and encouragement of the scholarship of, of grad students. And I think that's partly because, you know, they're consciously trying to build a field. Um, but I think it's also, you know, this awareness if you're studying the history of children and youth, that young people, you know, have this energy and enthusiasm and perspective that is going to benefit, you know, the field and the organization and, and the kind of work that, that you can imagine. So, um, so definitely in my experience, it's been, um, and, and I think we've continued that, right? And, and formalized some of the uh, informal ways that the society and more senior scholars were encouraging um, people uh, new to the profession and, and new to the field. I, I agree with Rebecca. And I think just the fact that a number of graduate students were invited, however it is we were invited, you know, to that conference, it wasn't just the two of us, there were a few other people there, including I know Leslie Paris was there, other people who have you know, stayed very important in the field. Um, and for me, so I mean, I'm, those of you, who, I, you know, I kind of, I have feet very firmly in two camps, the history of childhood and youth, but also American Jewish history. And American Jewish history is also very welcoming. Everybody there is nice. The senior people are nice, you know, and there's an interest in taking care of graduate students. But 
the other two fields that I was kind of in, I was getting a doctorate in American women's history. That's what I was doing. Like many people, I came to the field partially out of a gender, you know, women's history perspective. Women's history people were not nice, particularly. We're not so interested in graduate students if they weren't their own. Really, we're not so nice. <laughs> um, and in history of education, which is also something I was more involved, I didn't stay as involved in the history of education society. Of course, there were wonderful people in that group. And there was certainly overlap. There were definitely people in our society who were also very active in history of education. But I don't think I'm the only one who sort of drifted away once there was a better option because it just wasn't as friendly. And especially not to, in a way, kind of old school historians that are in the you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot of interest in the history of education and systems and structure. And of course, that's extremely important. But for to those of us who are interested, not just in childhood, but in children and children's voices and in doing that kind of centering work on the voices, uh, the same way that women's history had done, you know, looking for voices and creative use of sources. That wasn't as interesting to some of the, I think, some of the people who were in charge at the time the history of education um, society. So I know personally, I did, did not stay as involved in that field. I'm interested in it. I'm still interested in education. I went back to it for my book about ballet class in terms of arts education. But I, I do think that we have something to take pride in that we are from, from the beginning, there was this real um, interest in promoting and in helping junior people and it's been institutionalized in some really useful ways. And the fact that not only at the conferences, but also the journal, regularly publishes the work of you know advanced doctoral students is really good and of course it's all blind review so you don't really know but the fact that it turns out that way i think shows a comfort level among um senior graduate students in submitting their work they know that you know mm -hmm. they they're really making a contribution and that's something that's been pretty consistent and i i just think i do think that it's if not exactly unique it's still somewhat unusual to have a kind of cross-generational comedy that has been in place since the beginning yeah, I like that characterization, you know, maybe not unique, but uh, unusual. And I and I definitely felt, you know, um, turned off in, in some ways by the, the normal kind of hierarchical and po hierarchies and posturing that yeah. um, often, you know, happens that that at least especially um, in that first decade, I felt like just we're not there in the yeah. society. I felt and this is it's so this is so personal. I mean, these stories. I don't know if this explains why ha happened, but I I would point out that uh, I can remember working with I was a first year, I think first year or second year assistant professor at the University of Texas, and you know it wasn't a slam dunk early on that we were going to get enough people to run these conferences. Mm -hmm. Jim, this might have been a conference hosted at Marquette, um, and. But uh, Paula was leading the paper committee, and I did a lot of work sorting things through because when we had these first um, conferences, people didn't know each other, so they didn't propose as panels, which is a hell of an organizational mess when you're trying to put people together. I can remember putting it on my bedroom floor and having my two-year-old son walk all over my stacks. <laughs> but the reason I tell you that story of working is that Paula Fass, I know – was someone who already was very prominent, very prominent historian. And she would get on the phone and just call people and draw them in. That's kind of legwork. That's grunt work. I mean, it's just basic work. And we had a lot of people that could have done other things that decided, uh, Paul is one example, to do, to do really quite basic work. Jim as treasurer, Chris has done a ton, Paula did a ton. And that was making sure that the event worked, making sure that we pulled it off well. Um, people got together and got grants for our conference and institutional support invited them in. And, and, and people, I don't know if it was always just the older generation or what generation, people who have run this society have made smart choices. Um, I can remember one of the early debates Chris and I had about H childhood was how are we going to name this thing? And I think I've told this story before because I think this is actually a big decision. I didn't believe that something like H childhood could work. Who's going to join that? Um, Chris made the argument that if we defined it with any other term other than childhood and youth, if you defined it in terms of the welfare state 
or women or family history, you did anything like that, you would immediately exclude about 80% of the people that were interested. Jim's made this comment before, the whole, whole field is defined by people who have childhood as sort of a secondary interest. Maybe it becomes primary later, but the whole thing rested on a notion of being a big tent, drawing everybody together. That was a very smart decision because we got people involved because we, we give out 10 prizes every two years now in eight languages. And in every single prize, this phrase appears, the history of childhood and youth broadly construed. We have probably a hundred on our network, and I don't know how many dues paying members that aren't historians. They are literary scholars of childhood mm -hmm. and youth that work on children's literature historically. That group, that's a whole thing. Juvenile literature is a, a big deal. And they come in and they're part of this, even though a lot of us were interested in law and social policy in the United States in the late 19th and early 20th century. In other words, we had a big, we had a big tent approach. So yes, it was generationally welcoming, but it was also Bengt Sandin's voice saying, I care about internationalization. <laughs> like all the Swedes say that word. I love how they say that word. I'll never forget that. It isn't always the exceptionalism of America, right? <laughs> he would tell us that, you know, it, but it was in a friendly way um, to be inclusive. And I think that's been part of our success. Yes, childhood and youth, but everybody else is welcome in education or in various ethnic studies, every language, every institution, uh, girlhood, boyhood, you name it. Um, and wherever that takes us, we were willing to go. And I think that was critical to success. I think um, another thing that I think helped you know, with society's success and also just its broader reach is that there's an interest in the general public about childhood and the history, you know, the history of childhood. I mean, there, you know, there were at least two series, the Twain series and then the Ivan D series that were written for a broader audience. And, you know, maybe they, those books weren't going to be sold in the airport, but they were written, still written for a broader audience. And that also, I mean, and those were written by a combination of more senior and somewhat more junior people, at least the IVD books. And I just, I think that also helped. It like both garnered some more legitimacy on the field if it needed that, I don't know if it did, but it also meant that you know, some of those books were reviewed in places like, I know my book, Small Strangers, got a review in the Christian Science Monitor. I mean, they certainly did not review Jewish girls coming of age in America, nor would I have expected them to. That's okay. But, you know, there was, there was an interest. There was like a broad, you know, a magazine kind of interest in the history of childhood that I think um, also helped. And that big, the Big Tent approach really not only supported that, but encouraged it. And I think some interesting ways. Yeah, and I think some of those, you know, conscious decisions to um, to make a welcoming space for kind of broad interdisciplinary approaches Right. So making sure that, um, you know, the journal that we have a space for thinking about policy and contemporary issues related to childhood and youth, that, uh, you know, there's a space for thinking about pedagogy and, and history teaching. Right. Um, and, and then the conscious uh, and and really, um, you know, pointed efforts to make sure that we make this an international organization um, is something else that really stands yeah. out. Yeah. I mean, the, the, the gymnastics we went through to redefine categories of representation on the board mm -hmm. uh, and decisions we made to materially support grad students especially. I, I remember thinking it was a big deal to just waive the fee for grad students who um, were on programs. It was $25 probably or something like that. It was, it was a small amount, but it made all the difference, I think, um, as, as we, we gained recruited members in a way. One of the things that always was difficult for us was keeping membership levels to a place where we needed them to be. And I don't know what it is now. I mean, it was usually around 300 to 400, which isn't a big organization. But I wager that we probably have had thousands of different members. Yes. Because people do kind of come and go. It, it literally, I just thought of that as you were talking, Pat. Because it was no, annoyed us so much. People would come for a year or two, or well, we had two-year dues. So, um, and they wouldn't stick. They'd come to one conference, and then, well, 
a much better way, healthier way of thinking about that is how many different people have belonged. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, the the pandemic me, is is the pandemic's hurting us a little bit. I would think we're we're low. Yeah. Uh, the whole way this thing works is that people join because of the com- conference, uh, and that's great. And we've been able to keep it. Well, we we had a, a dip in one conference area where we ran our policies different, learned a lesson about the importance of membership being tied to delegate status. But we can keep it above 300, which keeps us Johns Hopkins happy and gives us money for prizes and for uh, support for conferences and the digital fellow for the for the online stuff and all of that. But we're, we're down, just to answer your question, I think we're down in the low 200s now, 220 or something like that. Um, and, um, we, but we'll be all right. Uh, we're so, we're so, we're so efficient economically. We don't waste a lot of money. We, we avoided getting into entanglements with like hotels to sign contracts. We relied on our members to hold our conferences on university campuses where we got a lot of in-kind resources built in and you get into those hotel con. contracts where you can pay out to them if you don't get enough delegates. A lot of associations didn't make that smart decision. We did. And it makes us a lot more durable. But there are some financial challenges that we face through this pandemic. And that was part of the welcoming part of that decision we made to be welcoming, to be on a door, to have dorms available. Yeah. We've always had hotels available too, usually. But I remember the first couple, I was actually a matchmaker of roommates. You know, because we gave, you know, a shared room as one of the, if you're on the program, you, you get your dorm free for two nights, something like this. And I literally was matching people up. I know here at Marquette, maybe at UMBC, I was doing that too. I don't remember, Chris. Uh, but it, it was an elaborate and, as, as you mentioned earlier, um, labor-intensive effort to, to again, be welcoming and um, kind of ensure our future in that way. How has society changed over the years from your standpoint? Well, I think one thing that's changed is that, I mean, if anyone ever had to kind of defend the field's very existence, I just don't think that's true anymore, right? 20 years in, there's just the kind of legitimacy that nobody really, you don't want to have to think about it. And I don't think anyone really does have to think about it anymore, not just because of the explosion in publications, but also because of the teaching. I mean, to reiterate a point that Rebecca made about pedagogy, I mean, think how many more courses are being taught on the history of childhood, you know, one way or another, everywhere, I mean, internationally. And that's really important, not, just, not only because it you know, fulfills an important mission of the society to teach, to teach to people who aren't necessarily going to read all the books, you know, to get students into the classroom and thinking about these issues, but it also institutionally in various departments. And that even, even when you work in a room full of really friendly people, I think for, you know, maybe 10, 15 years ago, the, oh, I want to teach a history of childhood class might have been not an automatic sell. I mean, that was my experience. I have an incredibly supportive department. And when I first brought it up, they were like, eh, you know, maybe if you have an extra, I have such a heavy teaching load that there was basically eventually always going to be room to do something like that. But now, now I teach the history of childhood in the U.S. regularly. And I, there's another colleague in my department, a small group of people. There's only 12 of us. Um, Kelly Duke Bryant, who teaches, who works on um, children and education in Senegal, and she teaches the history of childhood in Africa. And, you know, there, she had no issue when she wanted to teach that class. And I think not just because I was there and not, and, you know, but also because by then, by the time she's a few years behind me, and by then it was just so clear that this was a very an established field. So some of the groundwork that has been laid, I think, has also really, you know, has really made a difference um, to the field, both inside and out, outside the field. Yeah, I've definitely seen that happen. Just, um, you know, just this acceptance of age as a category of analysis and the and the vital role that young people and, and the perspectives of young people play, right, is, you know, something we don't have to, uh, you know, dig in and try to defend, um, you know, the, the scholarship that's come out of the folks involved in this organization has really, um, uh, you know, cemented this as a, as a legitimate, field of historical inquiry, right? And I think, I'm sorry, I'm just gonna add on one more thing. <laughs> sure. I think no. 
connected to that also has to do with that scholarship is just the enormous creativity that it takes yeah. to do the history of children and childhood, because especially if you want to center not just on the structures um, and systems in childhood, but also on, ch- on the children, right, in their own voices, that takes a lot of creative kind of research. And it's, it's recognized, you know, people are using all kinds of sources that weren't seen as sources in a way it does echo kind of what happened with women's history. That, oh, no, you can't write that history because they didn't say anything. They didn't leave anything behind. Well, it's just not true, right? It's just not the case. I remember hearing that when I was in graduate school. Oh, no, you're never going to find any Jewish girls' diaries. Well, you know what? No one looked for them before. So they're, they're out there. I mean, it's, it's a challenge, certainly. But, mm-hmm. you know, or, you know, Jim, think about Jim's book for the Civil War. I mean, although you know, the newspapers, the children, you know, the, the children wrote and produced themselves during the Civil War. I mean, these are fantastic sources, but people probably just skipped right over them before. And so the creativity of the scholarship in the field from everybody, and no matter you know what age or generation, I think has also really had an impact in the best possible way. Yeah, yeah. I think another. I don't know where this goes in terms of the society because I do think you know there's been a, a desire of the society to be interdisciplinary, but for it to be intellectually coherent, that still needs to be a historical study of childhood. I've always interpreted that and I felt that, and I think a lot of other people have too, that what it meant was that we weren't just for professional historians. If you worked historically at all, there was a place for you there. And we've always been sort of ambitious in trying to include that. But there is that sort of research tradition of, if you're not engaged in in historical work, there's a discontinuity in, in the conversation. Right. So it's been important, I think, to maintain that. But there has been outside of the society a really significant development in other disciplines, particularly sociology. But as sociology intersects with many other disciplines to study childhood and youth outside the medical model, outside of pediatrics and outside of developmental psychology and child psychiatry to ask social, historical, cultural questions. And that's been had had a sort of sociological institutional development and also a cultural youth culture, literature, um, arts dimension to it. And that's all been important in sort of creating the kind of of, of larger community where we might have thousands of people who have been delegates at various times. They, they don't necessarily even consider themselves historians, but they might mm-hmm. have something historical they want to present, or they might be part of something where they're um, dabbling in that. And I think that's, the, that's, that's been a huge part of my own career because I'm cross-appointed in history, but I've built an interdisciplinary program in childhood and youth studies. So for me, history has uh, not been the only game in town. And in fact, not the one that paid my salary. Yeah. You know? Yeah, um, so, so I've seen that um, kind of interdisciplinarity and the kind of set of, you know, core folks versus folks on the periphery of the history of childhood and youth. Yeah, there's kind of ongoing tensions, right? Mm -hmm. And it's both a source of um, uh, kind of, not really problems, um, but but something like that, but also a a source of um, kind of creativity, right? That's allowed us to, you know, expand and think in in new ways as as historians as well. so I liked your kind of positive spin earlier about, yeah, we get to, we're the big tent and we can pull this in. Um, but I think that, you know, I've seen this kind of ongoing, you know, dialogue and question about like, kind of, I mean, I guess it forces us to keep asking what are we and how are we relevant um, uh, kind of on a variety of levels, right? Yeah. I think when I was editing the journal, I, they didn't do historians, but they, they had to be ready with a historical sensibility. You know, that's kind of, I think, what you were saying, Pat, you know, is that that's how you pull people in. They don't have to be doing straight history, uh, but certainly, and, and that is one, one way to get, I think, scholars from doing Africa and other parts of the country. Often they're coming out of somewhat different traditions um, of scholarship. What about within the society, like in terms of process and institutional 
history. What have, what have from your, your three points of view, have you seen as the biggest challenges facing the society internally? When decisions were made, what were some of the, we didn't really have big fights, I don't think, but we did certainly have serious discussions about things. And then what, depending on where you were in society at the time, what, what do you recall about those? So I have not been on any, the executive, um, you know, the, the big executive committee the way the others have. I've, just, I've been on very award committees multiple times for the book prize, for, for article prizes. So I'm a little less privy to that, in, to that information. But my impression is someone who is always you know, interested and involved and sometimes served on lower level committees was that um, this was a very well-governed society where, again, it mattered that people kind of liked each other. <laughs> Yeah. So I think you know, that, 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 made, that really made a difference. There was you know, both a common sense purpose, but also kind of just people liked each other. The, so to me, that was a positive, but I did occasionally hear, so usually at conferences when it was like an in-person sitting around with a cup of coffee kind of thing, that there, was, there were some people who, did, who, did, who felt that they were, they were there, they were, did not feel excluded exactly, but especially until relatively recently, there might've been some concerns about like the click that runs it all, right? The same people have been <laughs> in positions of leadership for a while. Um, I think that's less true. I think that is probably a pretty natural progression in any, you know, early, and especially, and in a way it shows exactly as you've, as, um, as you've said, Pat, and as um, Jim said, in one of the other Origins Project series, like the people who were involved early did a lot of work and they didn't want to just give it up. You know, they wanted to see the fruits of their labors, which was completely justifiable. But I think that might have been a challenge, but my impression, this is very impressionistic, is that it is somewhat less so in the past five to six years. As there's been, you know, there has been turnover. There's different, you know, the journal's been through a couple of rounds of editors now. There's been different people in charge of some of the conferences. There's, you know, the people who were graduate students and early career people 20 years ago are now mid to senior people. And so there's been some, I, I think it's less of an issue and it's more of a growing pain. Uh, but I would actually be interested to hear, for those of you who are in higher leadership positions, if that ever was noticeable from the higher ranks. <laughs> I, I think I'd, we... I'd say so. I think I think part of it is like, you know, folks who are involved in building from the ground up, you know, something together and who, again, kind of genuinely really like each other. <laughs> um, you know, the conference and uh, things have been, you know, kind of every two years is a kind of a family reunion, right? Um, and, uh, but yeah, um, I've seen it. I mean, again, I've been a little bit more on the outside the last five years, um, in part because of, you know, family things. So, um, so it seems like there are new people and that mm -hmm. there's less of that kind of inbreeding. Um, I guess I know that we are really concerned. <laughs> um, when we Jim left that gonna, behind long ago, Rebecca. <laughs> when, uh, when Jim was going to be both president and still an editor of the journal, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that was a really hard decision. Um, but we felt like uh, in order to really have the journal where we wanted it to be moving forward, that we needed to make that that decision. Well, you needed an editor and no one else was asking to do it. So that, that was <laughs> you part just, of what you was just going called yeah, I mean, that would be my answer to your question is that I think Melissa has really named a theme that's important. But this this um, is an issue for all small nonprofit organizations. Mm -hmm. the, the positions on the executive, but particularly the presidency, the, this is a working president. Mm -hmm. you, you have to do a lot of work. And I don't think people are banging down the doors if they know what it is to actually do that job, that job. It's not easy. So, so there's. And the same was true for the executive committee too. Like who yeah. are, who is actually going to do the work and, and we need people to, to do some, you know, serious kind of grunt work. Um, good organizers, yeah. good communicators, people who value it, people who are selfless and are willing to do work that benefits others. Those things are, are, are really critical for a small group. And we've had a, just a wealth of people like that. And so I think one of the challenges for us is that doesn't just fall off the tree, right? Can we recruit people to make a commitment to serve the society 
over a long period of time? And can we propagate that ethic over decades? Um, I think that's a challenge for all small organizations like ours. And so part of the of things always being within a click is that when you're given a task and you're struggling to figure out who will do it with you, you call your friends. I'll give you a detail. Maybe this is supposed to be in the cone of silence, but I'll what the heck, I'll just tell. One of the one of the things that the president does, it's a pretty important task, is name who will be the running the nominating committee. So the nominations for the president actually picks someone to run that. And then no one on the executive is really part of forming that nomination. It's somebody else. It's a really good part of our constitution. I was very thoughtful. I went out and got Tom Axelson, who wasn't part of the group. And Tom is like, Tom's a Swede. Uh, and uh, Tom said, you know, he was very honest. Oh, who do I, who do I ask? What do I do? I said, Tom, <laughs> I don't want to know. <laughs> you know, don't ask someone that you think that I want you to ask or whatever. Right. And, and um, so uh, Melanie Tibet Deput is, is a Brit and was not in that group. She's a senior scholar and very well known going to be president next. She's not part of it. So that my point is, is that you can consciously say, I'm going to reach out beyond people I know, but it is really hard. Because you have to cold, you have to cold call people. Yeah, and we, and, and we also, I mean, I think we, you know, after a while also made kind of conscious decisions about, okay, we need specific, you know, to think about representation on the board, right? And and not not do this in ways that are so comfortable, but really kind of, um, you know, develop some relationships and, and get outside of our comfort zone. And I can remember some conversations too about just, you know, thinking about the people who come to conferences, you know, every, every time. Um, and let's consciously decide like, okay, none of us are going to be on the same <laughs> panel next time, but we're going to reach out and pull in some new people. Yeah. Um, which yeah. again, like, you know, takes more work. <laughs> yeah. And I think we talked, we talked constantly about it in the, the, the early years about who's doing what and can we sustain another kind of committee? Can we have all those book and, well, there's only one book, but all those article awards. So you have to get, you know, three people to be on those committees all the time. And I think we were fairly careful about expanding the service requirements of the, of the, of the organization until we felt pretty good about being able to fulfill or fill those slots. Yeah. I was on the nominating committee one year, but at least 10 years ago, at least I have to look at my CV to find out. Um, and that year there was, there were, you know, discussions not only about, you know, really making sure there's always graduate student representation, um, which had always been an, of interest to the leadership, but really solidifying it in a way that it now is. But also to, you know, we need to internationalize, which, you know, is a word that we've all used already. And I do think it is an, a, a really important feature of a society, but in some ways it's easier said than done. I mean, and there's some, you know, and then there's some countries that have always had, you know, great representation like Australia yeah. and Sweden, but then how you find people who are working in this field and other areas who might just not know about this, you know, that, that, that year the nominated committee really tried to find people who were doing the work, but might not even ever have heard of us because they were in France and just, you know, hadn't crossed the desk before. Well, and the obvious example for that is Germany. Yeah. And without being too blunt about it, but, uh, you know, they don't need us. And I mean, what I mean by that is they don't need to join an American or, or, or an English speaking organization that there's plenty that they can do. And so there's there's a lot of literature on childhood historically in German. And so making that bridge where we're able to include um, uh, German scholars is not as easy for us. Whereas other links, other multi-language links, Spanish being the obvious example, is a much easier thing for us to pull off um, in terms of being multilingual. And of course, Scandinavian languages um, all fit in too because of the way that things are organized. So it's not all only about what does the society want to do. 
but sort of where are the opportunities? It was, you know, I met a, 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 a group of folks um, at a conference in uh, Dublin a number of years ago, and Sarah Ann Buckley was one of the people that I met. She was one of the organizers. She's the host for the conference in Galway this um, uh, summer, and they had a whole group in Ireland. That was really easy to interact with, to make connections, you know, and not just because of my name. It was just a really easy group to get to know, to come, to give a paper, to talk them, to make friendships, um, you know, and I, I'm still in touch with those people. That was really easy to do, but not all international connections are going to work that way. Language matters, geopolitics matters, institutional development matters, common narratives and questions matter. And so you can't just say, we're going to be international uh, and have it happen. There are opportunities and limits to our ability to do that. But I think we've done it, frankly, I think we've done an awesome job. Well, I mean, we, we, there, there have also been some challenges with that in terms of location of our conferences, right? So we've tried to be really conscious of you know, where are our conferences? How is this, um, you know, facilitating the attendance of folks who might not otherwise be able to come, but then how is it creating challenges when university budgets are so strapped and faculty <laughs> may not have the funds to travel internationally or folks who are internationally, international to come, to come here? Um, yeah, I don't know how you guys are, how you're thinking about that more recently. Mm. Um, you know, after Australia and then, I mean, we're on Zoom now for, yeah, way, but. I don't think we've ever just fallen into a way of doing th something. We're going to stick to it no matter what. Yeah. Uh, my other organizations are very much traditional and, and do things certain ways. And, and I suppose there are some things that we have tried to figure out ways to do the same way all the time because it's easier, uh, but have not usually, uh, fallen into ruts. Well, we should probably begin wrapping this up. And I, I want to ask just one more general question about your thoughts about society itself. And maybe like the greatest challenge you think it faces going into our, our second 20 years. I think one of the interesting open questions is, this was touched on earlier, is, you know, kind of, who, how many people who work in this field, all those, you know, the thousand people who have come and gone, you know, see the history of children and youth as a primary field now, which I think is possible to see in a way that maybe it wasn't 20 years ago. And we want to get more of those people. <laughs> um, because I think that that's part of the issue. Like if, if you, know, you want to build a field, we built this great institutional base, this, you know, just amazing blossom of scholarship over the past 20 years, the personal relationships, the mentorship, I mean, all of this is wonderful and important and long may it continue. Um, but if it's always most people's secondary field, that's a built-in issue. And, you know, and I'm saying this is somebody for whom it has not always, I mean, I don't see it as a secondary field, but I have two different fields and I kind of go back and forth between them. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for a long time when I was working on my book about activist Jewish women, I was, I was less involved for a little while. I was always a member, but I, you know, I was somewhat less involved because this wasn't, I wasn't presenting at conferences. I went to most of them, but because I was doing something else, I don't think of it as a secondary field, but I think a lot of people still do in a way. And that's why membership comes and goes, because people don't give up their membership and whatever they think of as their primary thing, but they might, and especially in when economic, economic circumstances dictate that. And I don't know. I don't know if that, if that should be a goal of a society or a goal of the field. Like, we are here now. We've been here long enough that we should be your number one. And there's no way to, of course, enforce that. But in terms of just how people conceptualize their own place in the field, I think that that is an open question, maybe, and a challenge going forward. Yeah, I'm torn on that too. You know, I still see, um, you know, a number of scholars who are doing really great work on the history of child and youth who really had never thought about, uh, you know, identifying um, themselves that way and maybe not even aware of some of the really important work that they should be. Um, yeah, so I think that's an ongoing challenge and question. I think, I think identity will follow relationships and the quality of the work. And I think if we just continue to focus on really high, our conferences have been so well organized, just hats off to all the people that have done that. Uh, and if we do those well, and the journal is well run, 
and we, and we can, you know, uh, if the, the, if the website is well done and, and we have a presence on Twitter and, 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 and I have a net, in other words, if we're doing all of those things well and the quality of the work is strong, then I think identity will follow it. And I, I think that it's, by the way, I think it's okay wherever that path leads. I think it's okay if um, I'm, this is kind of, I'm not trying to up the ante on my point, but this is how I'm different, I guess. It's not clear to me that there's an essence in something called being a historian, right? In other words, even the way universities are organized is changing rapidly. And some, some disciplines are the newest disciplines we have who have the strongest sense of their identity. Economics and psychology have very strong senses of what they're about, and they're successful in the professions. That doesn't mean that there isn't really important things going on in all sorts of areas that are outside of those sort of scientifically organized fields. And I think it's okay to have an unknown about where history is going, where social research is going, uh, because, because political, cultural, social questions that, that childhood is central to, they're not going away. We're not gonna wake up tomorrow and suddenly childhood and youth will in fact in the world be unimportant. So I don't think we have to be insecure about where this might take us. It just might change how it's defined and categorized and that's okay. That's okay, that's gonna be all right. As long as we keep working and producing really strong, important work, that's where it's at. And I think teaching is also important and something that we should not you know, discount. I mean, one thing that, you, that we can think about maybe, you know, for future conferences or just something to think about it is, you know, because there's so many more people teaching the history of childhood and youth or children in some way, like who, who's the audience for that? You know, maybe, maybe teacher, if people are planning to be teachers should be taking classes like this. I mean, you know, I go out and I recruit some <laughs> teacher candidate types sometimes to say, you know, this is, you would be interested in this. You want to teach children. Well, come learn about children, you know, historically. Um, at Rowan, at my institution, a lot of history majors are planning to be teachers. So there's fertile cross-pollination <laughs> possibilities there. And I think that should be, you know, it, it is our job also as historians, as academics, not to just stay in the ivory tower and to also, you know, be, be available to think of and talk through issues around children and childhood out in various public settings, which I do think lots of people who belong to society do. Um, but that is something that's important and it's, it's important work. And I think that that's something like a, a path that, um, could maybe institutionally be explored a little further. Maybe, I don't know if I have any definite ideas, but I think that's something that will, um, because it's exactly as Pat says, right. The, I, the questions, whatever they are, whether they're policy questions mm -hmm. or anything else are not going away. Right. Yeah. And, and I think, you know, one of the challenges is how to do this in ways that fit with current technology and changing technologies. Yeah. Right. Um, and so I think some of the things that we're doing along those lines <laughs> are, are important. So, um, so, you know, but those are gonna, those are gonna happen, um, you know, and how are we, you know, as a society engaging in those public ways with our scholarship in ways that are ac accessible, right? Uh, including to young people, right? Who I think could, you know, especially, you know, young people are really, are always important in, in politics and in contemporary issues and um, increasingly so I would argue in the modern world as, um, yeah. as technology makes this more available. But I think our whole, a whole environment is changing so much. Think about, just reflect for a moment on your own media consumption behavior and how it's changed in the last 20 years. And it's not just, oh, it started changing around 2000 or it's not just the sm smartphone. It's everything. I mean, I was reading the Houston Chronicle. I actually emailed Jim about this. Uh, and, and I was, but the New York Times, the, on my iPad, the nature of the stories they're producing, they don't do it all the time. Some of it is just an old fashioned story on an, on an iPad. But every once in a while, they're doing this investigative journalism with the visual 
aspects of what they're producing that are stunning. Some of the graphics integrated with the stories, the way people are scrolling, things come onto your screen. To me, that's journalism, but it ought to be history too. Yeah, and we ought and to be is, thinking about producing journals like that. Yeah, yeah. What does it mean to be, you know, publishing history of child and youth in this new era? Right. What does it mean to um, to host a journal and to yeah. be promoting scholarship? Yeah, and also to think about documentation. You know, I'm going to say this like for the future. You know, <laughs> when you've got when you have the create you know the creative energies of a lot of younger people on TikTok and not writing diaries. You know. <laughs> Not that those are mutually exclusive, but they, you know, like, what does that mean functionally for people who are historians wow. later you know, down the road? I, you know, I dread to think <laughs> it's, um, it's you know, for someone, I, I think I'm too old to like wrap my mind around what that kind of research <laughs> challenge is going to be, you know, in 40 years from now or whatever. But that's another, you know, the, not just media consumption, but also media production. You know, what, what, what are records, what kinds of sources are young people producing today? You know, how, is, how are we going to be able to document that in the future? Well, I think on that wearying and exhilarating note, um, <laughs> I'm going to thank Pat, Rebecca, Melissa for join, joining me on this very interesting and little bit of a walk into the past, but mainly really thinking about the future. So thanks for, for, for doing this. Oh, thank you. Hey, hey, guys, it's really good to see all of you. Yes. You know, through all this, we haven't been able to travel, but I just really, really like uh, just being able to see you and check in. Yeah, and you know, we won't be able to be in person in 2021, but good. I look forward to the next time. Good to see you. Thank you for listening to Shusai Podcasts. You can find more materials and features from the Society for the History of Children and Youth online shcy.org